Christian conduct is not based on our position in society, but on our position in Christ. The uh, <laughs> the, the struggle that I, I run into is how do you convert slaves and masters into applications for us in Three Oaks in 2021 where this is not an issue. We can talk theoretically. We can talk about people in, in other situations, other cultures. Slavery is a real issue around the world today. There are more slaves in existence due to trafficking and other conditions that, that produce slavery. There are more slavery, slaves in existence today than in all 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade combined. Let that sink in. So do not allow yourself to believe that the issue of slaves and masters is gone. But how do we deal with this here in our setting? Well, as I was moving our cattle between pastures this week and contemplating the text for today's sermon, I was listening to my regular uh, roster of podcasts when I heard John Stone Street of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview uh, talking about several Olympic athletes on one of his breakpoint commentaries. Just to, to borrow from Stone Street, I'm just going to read part of the transcript from this short commentary. And as he was talking about these Olympic athletes, he mentioned the fact that the ratings for the Olympics were down and, and uh, for any number of reasons, and people saw so much of the political maneuvering that went on with it. And yet, he points out that there were a number of inspiring athletes in Tokyo this year whose performances and stories, as he says, are worth knowing and celebrating. Sydney McLaughlin is what, certainly one of them. After winning the gold medal in the 400-meter hurdles last week, she said, what I have in Christ is far greater than what I have or don't have in life. She then went on to say, I pray my journey may be a clear depiction of submission and obedience to God. Another female runner who shocked the world is only a teenager. Athing Mu, I will confess I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Athing Mu won Olympic gold in the 800 meter as a 19-year-old. She's the first U.S. woman to win the event since 1968. In an interview in June, Mu said, As a follower of Christ, our main goal is to live in the image of Jesus in order to connect to God goes on to mention some others jumping ahead in the commentary he's, he says there are other stories too including those of athletes from other countries after defeating New Zealand for the gold in men's rugby the Fiji national team sang a hymn the hymn goes this way we have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the Lord we have overcome it was a wonderful moment and a wonderful reminder that whether we win in rugby or anything else, the most certain thing in the world is what Jesus Christ has done for us, not what we will ever do. U.S. wrestler Kyle Snyder 
faced his familiar Russian foe for the gold, but came up short. I'm a competitor, so I hate to lose, said Snyder. But winning doesn't define him. I think Snyder might be my favorite example in some ways of what I'm talking about here. There's a sports spectrum quote on Kyle Snyder. It reads this way. Saturday's loss was not the result he was hoping for, but he hopes others are able to see in him why his faith in God is so important. He says he finds his identity in Christ and not in his sport. As big as the sport is in my life, wrestling doesn't define me, he wrote for the increase in June. God alone defines me. I'm always consistent with my scripture study and prayer, and during the pandemic I was able to continue to grow and focus on God and hear what he wanted to teach me. Kyle Snyder gets it. And I think what he gets is a real key to understanding the core reality of today's passage. You can write this down. Who I am in this world is nothing. Who I am in Christ is everything. Who I am in this world is nothing. Who I am in Christ is everything. Now this brings us to today's text. Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. As we read earlier, so we read again, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. If you're taking notes, there's a set-apart paragraph that clarifies this. Understand, this passage is not a statement on the morality of slavery or the oppression of the poor, powerless, and marginalized. It is not a statement on the morality of slavery or the oppression of the poor, powerless, and marginalized. It is not a condemnation of the power structures or a call to social justice. Rather, it is a call to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships regardless of any of those things. One more time. This passage is not a statement on the morality of slavery or the oppression of the poor, powerless, and marginalized. It is not a condemnation of the power structures or a call to social justice. Rather, it is a call to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships regardless of any of those things. Now, as Paul is talking about this, he could, if he wanted to, certainly condemn slavery, put an end to it. He doesn't need to. The kind of slavery that we automatically think of was already contrary to God's law in Israel. And even now in Roman times, the vast majority of slaves, virtually all slaves in the Roman Empire, were either the spoils of war, those who were captured in war, 
or those who had sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt. As in ancient Israel, as in pre-Roman times, throughout even the pagan world, slavery was essentially, in many cases, a form of welfare. If you could not afford to pay your debts, rather than kill you, I employ you. Now, it is definitely a, a, a bonded servitude. And so very often, if you have an older translation, that term slave will be rendered as bond servant. It is someone who is bonded into a servant life, into a slave life, to repay a debt, to provide for a family when they are impoverished and unable to do so. And it does, without question, bring about a certain status, a certain class. But in first century Roman Empire... The culture there was dramatically different than what we might naturally think of when we think of slavery. Our mind immediately goes to the race-based chattel slavery of our country's earlier history that was prominent in many places around the world. That's not what was happening there. About 90%... (laughs) Let me back up here. Let me back up before I get into quoting statistics that aren't really going to help with the sermon. During that era, during that time in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that up to two-thirds of the people, of the actual population, up to two-thirds of the population was in some form of slavery. They were in the slave class. That's a little bit shocking when you think about it and dramatically different than what we might recognize That means only a third were in the ruling class. But the slaves in the Roman Empire had an inherent dignity. They were seen, yes, as second-class citizens, but they could be citizens nonetheless. Slaves could amass wealth. There were laws about how you might treat a slave if you were to Uh, to unnecessarily uh, abuse a slave rather than disciplining them. Physical discipline was allowed and even encouraged throughout the culture in many settings. But if you were to harm them, there could be penalties that go along with that. In Israel, according to Jewish law, it would bring about the death penalty. It was necessary to treat slaves with a degree of respect but not the same respect, not as peers, not as equals. As you can imagine, anybody who's treated as a second-class citizen has a tendency to bristle at it. It's not enjoyable. It's not fun. None of us here have ever lived as slaves to our employer. That's not something that is an issue here in our congregation. It's not to say that doesn't happen, but it's not normal in our society. But you may have felt like a slave. You may have felt oppressed. You may have been mistreated, legitimately mistreated. You may have had a situation held over your head that you couldn't get out of. And even though you wanted to and you worked at it, you were unable to free yourself from that bondage, if you will. And it may have affected your attitude at work. It may have affected your performance at work. Now, for you, maybe it wasn't a work situation. Maybe it was a family situation. We've talked about marriage and family already. Maybe for you, it's a 
a governing situation. You're, you feel oppressed by the government. You feel government overreach. And I'm not going to be the person to stand here and tell you that's not real. <laughs> There's lots of overreach in lots of areas of life. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is not for him to say, we're going to fix this. Let's, let's have a call to social justice. Let's have a revolution. What he's talking about all flows from, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 21 of chapter 5. You know it, we memorized it. If you look back to 521, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is for all Christians speaking about your personal interaction and conduct, reflecting the character of Christ. Then he fleshes that out. Husbands and wives, here is your uncomfortable submission situation. Children and parents, here is your uncomfortable submission situation. And today he goes on, slaves and masters, here is your uncomfortable submission situation. But the call is not issued to deal with the institution. The call is issued to you and to me to deal with my own heart and how my relationship with Christ plays out in my everyday experience. Now, Paul will address slavery in other places. In fact, he'll say uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, if you are able to gain your freedom as a slave, do it. You should, right? In the book of Philemon, the entire book of Philemon is dedicated to a conversation with a person who has, is a slave owner and has become a Christ follower. But his runaway slave has also become a Christ follower. And, and has become useful in ministry to Paul. And Paul contacts Philemon and says, Listen, uh, I could command you to release him, but I'm not doing that. I want to appeal to your heart as a brother. This is the nature of what we're reading here. And, and as we do it, recognize we've been talking about submission for several weeks, right? And so the, the, the basic idea in our overview of Christian submission was that the right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life. And then having established that, Paul fleshes it out for us. We've been learning for some time, and we specifically dealt with it back in January, that God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to illustrate his relationship to his people. When we looked at marriage a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Christian submission in marriage reveals Christ's relationship to his church. There is a revelation to the world and to one another of God, his nature, his character, and his relationship to his people in how we interact with one another. When we talked about parenting, Last week, we saw the core reality that the ordered roles of the family are God's training ground for real life in Christ. Again, God is revealing himself through the interaction of his people in these ordered systems of submission and authority, designed into all of creation to get us to understand. It's like all of the created order is a metaphor. 
is a, a, an object lesson, a word picture, to get us to see the eternal realities of a relationship with God himself. This week, as we mentioned earlier, our core reality is that Christian conduct is not based on our position in society, but on our position in Christ. It's not based on our position in society, but based on our position in Christ. Okay, unfortunately, as I mentioned, I titled the sermon early in the process, and if I could redo it, uh, I would change the title, because it became clear to me that it just it wasn't broad enough, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't deep enough if we just talk about work. It's not equivalent directly to the slave-master picture, and there's more. If I could retitle it now, I might use something like position or status. I didn't, because honestly I didn't care enough about the title to change it. I wanted to make sure we get the message right. But it did change my application, or the direction of my thought anyway, in applying Paul's message to the first century Ephesian church to our lives today. Here are some of the things that became clear to me, and hopefully I can communicate them clearly to you. First, every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. Every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. That's been a key point of Paul's letter. It's central to the gospel message. The only identity that matters is who we are in Christ. If I am not in him, if I have not received him by faith, I'm hanging my whole, my whole hope on the reality of Christ's death and resurrection in my place, recognizing that it is only God's grace that allows me to have a relationship with him. He is holy and I'm not. The standard is perfection. I can't meet it. I never have been able to meet it. And I am rightly rightly deserving of his wrath and condemnation. And that's the status for every single person. But by God's grace, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if I will receive that, if I'll take hold of that and say, okay, God, I can't, I can't get right with you by trying to stack up good deeds against my bad. I can't just hope that you're going to see that I'm doing my best and give me a pass. First off, none of us are really doing our best. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that. But that's not the standard. But by God's grace, Christ dying in our place has paid the penalty for our sins that we might be raised by him from death to life. This is the only reality that we need to get everything else is a subcategory everything else derives from that you either have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ or you don't have a relationship with God which means you're cut off from the very source of life and you are unable to ever fulfill the purpose for which you were created because every single person was created for God's glory and his pleasure. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. 
because the only thing that matters is our relationship with Christ. If you're in Ephesians, uh, just turn the pages a couple to the left, back up to Galatians chapter 3. It's the book right before Ephesians. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to take a look at verses 26 to 29. I'll give you just a moment. Galatians 3. 26 to 29, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. He's writing to the church, to those who have placed their trust and hope in Jesus Christ. You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've been identified with him, you've been identified with the church, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now he could have added more illustrations here. He could have gone on uh, and, and given us more pictures. These are the primary ways that people would define themselves in that time, in that place. Today, we see some of those same things. We have a tendency in our humanness to define ourselves by race or ethnicity. The reality is there's one race, the human race, one blood. We all come from a common ancestor in Adam and even more closely in Noah. So there is no difference endemically between what we call races. Skin color is not a reason to divide, but we do. We group people, we categorize people according to human definitions, and we begin to see ourselves according to that identity. He mentions male and female, and we know that there is a a war on biology today. But it's more than a war on biology, on science. It's a war on being, on ontology. The very definitions of reality are being rebelled against because that's what... The heart, the mind, governed by the flesh, does. Paul says, none of that matters. The way you identify yourself, you need to stop. You are who God says you are. Amen, somebody. You are who God says you are. The reality is that he created you to be exactly who he created you to be. And you and I don't get to change that or define it according to human terms. So for us here in this room, many of us would identify as a core part of our identity as American. But that's not who we are. It's where we live might be some values that we espouse, but it's not who we are. Who we are is found in Christ. You might identify as a particular uh, political persuasion, but that's not who you are. And Paul wants us to recognize that we in Christ are one in Christ. We need to throw away those other identities. Every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. Turn to the other side of the book of Ephesians, to the book of Philippians. We're not turning very many pages. They're skinny in this area. 
Paul, having been a well-educated Pharisee, which was not the term of derision we might know it as, that was a respected group. Paul was a rabbi, and he has given his, uh, his personal credentials in a couple of places in the New Testament. But starting with uh, verse 7 of Philippians 3, Paul talks about his own earthly human identity this way. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Screeching halt here. You want to know participation in his sufferings? Yeah, Paul wants to identify with Christ even in his sufferings and even specifically lays it out for us here. Yeah, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, but I want to suffer with him, for him, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You don't have to turn there, but Peter points out in his letter that those who have died are free from sin. doesn't have power on them. Paul is saying, I want to suffer with Christ because I want to be separated from my flesh-driven life. I want to, I want to count everything a loss, and I do, and yet I don't. I do in my mind, and yet daily I struggle with this. And he'll detail that in Romans 7. Constantly, I'm at war inside with who my inner person wants to be, and yet who my more flesh-directed person tends to be. But I will no longer ever identify with the old me or with this world. I will not identify with anything but Christ as my primary source of identity. Every, every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. Now, the reality is this does something in us. If you're still in Philippians, turn just another page or so into the book of Colossians and take a look at Colossians 3. I think Colossians 3 is a good parallel for us. Colossians and Ephesians were written about the same time, sent to people in, in neighboring areas. And, and there's a lot of parallels between these two letters. And so you have sort of a, a summary in some ways in Colossians 3 of what we see in the latter half of the book of Ephesians. But, but notice the connection as we read this together. Paul is saying because of who you are, you need to now change the way you think, the way you identify. And in changing the way you think and identify, it will change the way you act. It affects how you live. It drives your conduct. Rather than reading the entire book of Colossians, as my heart desires, we'll just start with 3 verse 1. Since then, 
You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's saying, get your mind right, raise your gaze, you need to be thinking in eternal reality rather than being tied to temporal things that will pass. You are not a part of this world anymore. You died to it. And you've been raised with Christ. Therefore, your true identity is in Christ. Your hope for the future is in Christ. Let go of the things of this world. Notice what he says next. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. None of that belongs with who you are. If your mind is set on heaven, if, if you're looking up, if your mind is set on, on eternal, heavenly things rather than on earthly things, these things, as he says in Ephesians, just don't fit you. There's no place for this in the Christian life. Get rid of the anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. He continues, verse 9, don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Forget about your human divisions, your human identities. It's Christ. And if it's Christ, if you're in Christ, it changes how you live. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, this is our memory verse for today, by the way, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And he does the same thing here he does in Ephesians. He fleshes it out, shorter version. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor so that they think of you as a good employee, if you will. right? Not just to please the boss. 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, still talking to slaves, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Is your boss a jerk? Not the point. It doesn't matter. Work as working for the Lord, not for your boss. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, they're not recognizing your contributions at work? Who cares? You don't belong here. This isn't home. You'll get your reward from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Every defining identity of this world is shattered in Christ. Knowing who we are in Christ drives how we live. Next, notice this. We submit to one another within the body for the sake of Christ because we belong to one another in Christ. We submit to one another within the body for the sake of Christ because we belong to one another in Christ. This has been the emphasis that Paul's been making in 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The reason that you submit is Christ. He's made the case through the first four or five chapters up into this moment that in Christ, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to one another. We are one. Therefore, submitting to one another, just as the members of your own body submit to one another, just as we've used the illustration before, members of a team voluntarily play the role that they play. And those teams where everybody embraces their role have a lot of success. Those teams where not everybody does, maybe I'm unhappy that this person's getting to do something I want to be doing, it tears the team apart. Same whether we're talking about sports teams or musical uh, ensembles or bands or the church or families. If we don't submit to one another because we belong to one another, it will tear us apart. It will destroy our unity. Paul has emphasized this reality throughout the letter as he does elsewhere. Uh, take a look real quick. at uh, You can look up on your own time Romans 12, but if you back up to 1 Corinthians 12, we'll see what we're talking about. It comes right after Romans, so if you get to Romans or Acts, you've gone a little too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. His letters to the Corinthian church are a little different than his letters to the Ephesian church and Colossian church and, and Philippian church and Galatian church. He's dealing with specific dysfunction within the body. In other words, it's a bunch of Christians who can't get along with, the, with one another. might sound familiar to some of us because unfortunately that's far too often the case. Paul, in dealing with what's going on in the Corinthian church, is saying, listen, guys, stop being selfish and stupid. That's my paraphrase. But that's what he's saying. You are claiming Christ, but you're not living Christ. 
If you are actually in Christ, then all of these people you go to church with, you're all part of the same body. So stop biting each other. That doesn't make any sense. That's self-harm, if you will. Chapter 12. They've been jealous of one another in dealing with their, with their spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. We just saw this in Ephesians 4, by the way. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Notice there's a purpose that God gives you your abilities. There's a purpose that He gives you these gifts according to His grace, according to His Spirit. It's for the building up of the church, for the common good. He goes on to, to detail some of those things. Verse 11, all these are the work of of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Notice that consistent theme. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And he gives some, some detailed illustrations here. Now, if the foot should say, verse 15, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Jump down to verse uh, 25. So that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you, just to put a fine point on it, he's not going to let this pass and have them miss it. Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and of helping and guidance of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. His point is, all of these things are for the greater good. It's all one body. So whatever your gifting is, don't stress over it. Don't wish you had somebody else's. Don't think yours isn't good enough. You do whatever it takes using your gifts as God has given them gratefully, joyfully in service of the body. And yet I'll show you the most excellent way. And we see a familiar passage, but we often don't talk about it in context. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about weddings 
He says, in light of all this stuff, in light of all this body talk, in light of this getting along with one another, using our gifts without jealousy, understanding the most excellent way, the way that we should act, the way we should conduct ourselves. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, don't have a, a decision within myself, this is an agape love, a volitional love, a decision within myself to love, not based on my affections and your worthiness, but based on my choice to love you. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. A lot of sound and fury, not a lot of substance. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, in other words, everybody can see my giftedness and it looks awesome and people think, wow, what a spiritual person. But I don't have love. If I don't put others' needs ahead of myself, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, even if I do these good deeds, even if I promote social justice, as we talk about it today, <clears throat> and even give over my body to hardship, to the flames in another translation, that I might boast about my martyrdom, if you will, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Then he describes it. This is how we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. In other words, it puts others' needs ahead of our own. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, which is all why he can say at the beginning of verse 8, love never fails. We submit to one another within the body for the sake of Christ because we belong to one another in Christ. Notice also, we submit to authorities outside the body for the sake of Christ because we represent Christ in the world. We submit to authorities outside the body of Christ for the sake of Christ because we represent Christ in this world. You and I have been given the job according to 2 Corinthians 5.20, to be his ambassadors. We are here to represent Christ in a world to which we do not belong. We died to this world. And now we're here as aliens and strangers because in Christ, this place, it's not our home. We're citizens of another kingdom. But we are here to submit to one another because we belong to one another in Christ and to submit to authorities even outside the body because as we do so, we present a picture of Christ. We represent him. Turn toward the back of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you go to Revelation, you're at the end. You can kind of work your way back from there. The letters are pretty skinny. Several of them only have one chapter.
1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 11, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, live in such a way that your character stands out. They're going to accuse you of things. You're going to be falsely accused. You're going to be mistreated. Sometimes, not because of your faith, just because we live in a fallen and cursed world. Because sin exists, oppression exists, you may be oppressed. Deal with it. You may be oppressed because of your faith. Deal with it. You need to live with this thought in mind. How I conduct myself is the picture that the people around me will have of the God I serve, of the Christ I claim. You are your neighbor's Bible. This is the purpose of his command. Live such good lives among the pagans that when they see your conduct and your character, they will know. Whatever else they say about you, they will know that you're really above reproach. And they're going to find out that it's really not about you. It's not because you're better, but because there is a God in heaven and you have been with Jesus. He continues here to flesh it out. Submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake <clears throat> to every human authority. Remember, this is coming on the heels of verse 12. Live such good lives that they... Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Therefore, do this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority. Submit to the government. And remember, these were not good, godly, wholesome, righteous emperors or governors that they're talking about. That wasn't the point. You conduct yourself in a way that reflects Christ. Or to governors who are sent by him, by the emperor, <clears throat> to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. And he talks to slaves again, if Peter does just as Paul did. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing something wrong and endure it? If you deserved it, there's nothing to your credit about enduring what you deserved. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. 
Instead, he entrusted himself to, the, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He goes on to talk about wives. We don't need to read that for right now, but understand that what he says to the wives is that you're going to submit out of reverence for Christ, the same way Paul is talking about this, so that if you have a jerk of a husband who's not a Christ follower and isn't living like Christ, that your conduct might be just like the conduct before the pagans, might be so commendable, so winsome, so beautiful, that your dirtbag of a husband is convicted by it and says, I got to get some of what she's got. Because I'm a jerk and she's submissive anyway. What does she have that I don't have? that he might turn to Christ and be saved. This is our point. This is our goal. We submit to authorities even outside the body for the sake of Christ because we represent Christ in this world. Notice this. We follow those over us with respect, integrity, and love as if they represent Christ himself. <clears throat> We follow those over us with respect, integrity, and love as if they represent Christ himself. I'll draw your attention to Romans chapter 13, but for the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. You can look that up on your own. Paul is laying out this idea of submitting to authorities because the authorities that have been put in place have been put in place by God. And their job is to represent the wisdom and righteousness of God. Now, we all recognize authorities don't always do that. So we submit to governing authorities, whatever that authority might be, as if they represent him, just as, we, as he called slaves to submit to their masters, whatever our setting is, it does not matter if I think it's just or unjust, we submit to those governing authorities because they represent Christ. They represent God in the world. We run into conflict sometimes because when they don't, we have an obligation to obey God rather than man. So we are not called to lay down and be doormats and understand that in our setting today, we don't have an emperor, but we are part of the government. Part of what we owe the government is our input. We have votes and we vote on those who will lead us and therefore we are participating in it. We are governed not by individual personalities, but by founding documents that tell us and define for us what is valid and invalid authority within our government. We need to recognize this. But even when we must resist illegitimate, invalid authority, we must do so in a way that is so clear and obvious in its integrity, in its respect for that authority, 
and in its love for the individuals involved that people see Christ and they want to know more. How I submit, to whom I submit, and how, when necessary, I resist goes an awful long way toward giving people a picture of just who Jesus Christ is. Live as free men, but do not use it as an excuse to cover up your rebellious heart. Don't use it as an excuse for sin. We submit to authorities outside the body for the sake of Christ because we represent Christ in the world. We follow those over us with respect, integrity, and love as if they represent Christ himself. I'll end with this point. This is where Paul speaks to the masters. We lead those under us with respect, integrity, and love as if we represent Christ himself. We lead those under us with respect, integrity, and love as if we represent Christ himself. Let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul hits this with the masters with just one verse here. Gives a little bit more in what we read in Colossians, which is interesting because the passage itself is shorter, but he says a little bit more to masters. I don't know why. I don't know if, if the church at Colossae had more uh, more of those who were masters over slaves. But what we do recognize is that when we put these two things together, there is a specific call to leadership. Whatever position you have been given in life, whether you're a leader or a follower, a superior or a subordinate, whether you are in the majority or the minority, whether you identify humanly as a victim or an oppressor, you need to recognize that your primary identity is in Christ. Therefore, whatever your lot, whatever situation you find yourself in, Paul does not call us to not seek to improve that situation, but whether you are a master or a slave or whatever you are, first and foremost, your job is to represent Christ. We lead those under us with respect, integrity, and love as if we represent Christ himself. Notice both slave and master do what they do with respect, integrity, and love, recognizing Christ. Verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What do you mean in the same way? With respect and fear with sincerity of heart. In the same way that he's called the slaves to submit to the masters, he's calling the masters to view the slaves the same way. He's not telling them, stop leading. He doesn't even tell them here, get rid of the slaves. In fact, that would have been inhumane in certain situations because, again, we're not talking about the race-based chattel slavery that was endemically sinful, always and forever. But you're talking about employment Slavery, sometimes in a bonded situation, very often with respect, slaves were put in charge of the family, in charge of the house. Many of them were educated and commended, even above the master's peers. There was a 
different type of affection. But what he's saying here is both slave and master in Christ are equal. And both slave and master, regardless of your position, whatever your position is, however you might think about identifying yourself, forget about that. The mission matters. Your job is to reflect Christ. We lead those under us with respect, integrity, and love as if we represent Christ himself. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. The implication here is the intimidation and abuse. It doesn't mean don't point out consequences to not doing your job well. That's not what he's talking about. But the threats, the abuse, the, uh, the, the putting them down, the mistreatment, don't do that. Is that how you want God to treat you? Part of being a Christ follower is applying what we often call the golden rule, but what Jesus said was the natural implication of loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? If you love God with all your heart, then you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, then the, the logical application of that is you do to others what you would want them to do to you if the situation were reversed. Slave, follow your master the way you would want to be followed if you were the master. Master, treat your slave the way you would want to be treated if you were the slave. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a rocket surgeon, as a friend of mine would say, to be able to put together the application of this in your own personal life. Live like Jesus. If you are in leadership, if you're a teacher, a coach, a parent, an employer, a supervisor, an officer, whatever your situation, lead those who are under you under your authority with respect, with integrity, and with love for them as image bearers of God. As if you represent Christ yourself, because notice what he says next. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. You do represent Christ. If you are leading, you have a job to do. So lead well. But lead in such a way that when people see you, they want to follow you and they want to know more about why you are the way you are. Give them an example worth following as you reflect Christ in the relationships that he's given to you. Now, We've addressed some of the questions and controversies and conflicts as we've gone. So again, I would invite you to tune into the podcast to be able to get some more. Send, uh, send messages, emails, so we can address these things directly. But understand, Paul is not calling slaves to just be jellyfish, to not have a spine. He's saying to live in a way that reflects Christ. He's not calling masters to not be leaders, to not do the job. He's calling them to do it in a way that reflects Christ. So how do I know when to stand up and when to stand down? I need to look at my heart. 
I need to evaluate everything in light of eternity. If I do this, whatever this is, in this situation, am I treating this person the way I would want to be treated? Am I showing them by my love for them that I belong to Jesus? He told us in the book of John that that's how people will know that we're his disciples, right? So when I go to work, when I deal with the government, when I assess my situation, whatever that setting might be, whatever position, status I have in life, I need to look at that through the lens of how am I going to honor Christ through this? Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Christian conduct is not based on our position in society, but on our position in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we close out our service today, I pray that you would bring to mind for us the things that we learn in your word. That you would remind us, not just this morning, it's so easy on a Sunday when we're sitting here talking about theoretical things. And it's so hard when we go to work on Monday. It's so hard when we have to apply these things, when the rubber meets the road. So, Father, change us. Don't allow us to just be casual Christians, those who claim the name and wear the jersey but don't belong to the team. Cause us to recognize that what defines us is not an Olympic medal or a particular status in life, our people group, some special class of people. It's not the class struggle. It's who we are in Christ. Father, teach us, if we are in Christ, to be one body, a house united, joined together growing up into him who is our head. May these things happen for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.